You're listening to Vinyl Tap, Inside the Music Industry with Michael Parisi. Hi, my name is Michael Parisi. I've been a part of the music industry for over 30 years. I've worked in all facets of the business, from promotions, marketing, A&R and artist development. I've also worked for and with major record labels. I've run my own labels and my own music publishing company, and I'm still an artist manager today. So take a seat in the room with me as I talk to some of the biggest movers, shakers and visionaries of the music industry. There'll be lots of stories, insights and intel that you won't hear anywhere else. So sit back, relax and welcome to Vinyl Tap. Jaden Comerford is a true entrepreneur. In just over a decade, he has managed to build a mini empire that appears to be growing every day. From his early punk rock leanings to guiding the careers of the likes of Vance Joy, Amity Affliction and Tess Sultana, his company Unified has now also expanded into the US and the UK. Music, merchandising, touring and now even an investment fund, there are many strings to his bow. He's unassuming, humble, dedicated and he's on a mission. I spoke to Jaden at Unified headquarters recently and he had quite a bit to say about this said mission and his vision for the future. Enjoy this next instalment of Vinyl Tap. Okay, and here we are with the man himself, Jaden Comerford. Welcome, Jaden. You're my first interview for uh, the podcast. Oh, awesome. Believe it or not, so you're the guinea pig. Okay, well, thanks for the opportunity, Michael. Now, listen, before we get into the nitty-gritty, let's give the listeners some context here because we've known each other for a long time, haven't we? We have actually, yeah. And this morning, I was going through my files and um, and my emails, and I reckon it dates back to about 2010, but you meant, you mentioned earlier that it could have been 2009. Yeah, potentially even earlier. It's sort of at the point now where I'm losing a bit of track of time, but yeah, we have known each other for a very long yeah. time. Yeah, and remember that how we met? Because I'm trying to rack my brain, because... I'm a lot more fried than you'll ever be. (laughs) Well, I think I was just trying to track you down because at the time you were uh, the head of A&R at Warner Music Australia. Um, And I was working with bands and I was trying to figure out how to get them, you know, more exposure. And you're one of the people that I knew had had a history of supporting alternative Australian music. And I was working with what I thought was the best. So I wanted to know Michael Parisi. Yeah, and I remember... um the first thing you sent me to see was a band called Behind Crimson Eyes, which was one of your first signings, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, so they were signed to Boomtown Boom Records. Yeah, we put out their first EP in two thousand and five on Boomtown, and so that's why I'm thinking that it might have been I even two thousand six, two thousand six, two thousand seven. But yeah, we managed to get you to a show in Sydney at, at Spectrum. Spectrum. Yeah, and I think from memory we got you into the mosh pit. Yes, which like to be fair, when there's only like a hundred people at the show, it's not exactly really like a uh, an arena mosh pit, but it was definitely uh, we, we we definitely got you into the vibe. Oh yeah, I loved it. I remember calling you, going, "Oh, that was so good." And then we also um, talked about an Amity side project called Love Cats at the time, and that was when Boomtown was really starting to take off, wasn't it? It was starting to get a reputation amongst you know the right circles. And then I remember um, bringing you into Warner's where I was working first as a, some kind of consultant, marketing consultant, helping the um, the team out with some of their roster. Do you remember that? Yeah, well, I think it was such early days for me in the business that we were like, you know, sort of just making it, making ends meet in terms of trying to figure out how the business worked financially. And so when you said, hey, do you want to meet uh, the head of marketing at Warner? 
they've got all these bands that maybe you'll understand more than they do. And all of a sudden we're in a meeting talking about Panic at the Disco, My Chemical Romance, Paramore, you know, bands that I listen to in my sleep, not to mention understood how to market. And so all of a sudden Warner was giving us budget to help them market those artists, set up street teams that's right. And stuff like that. And that was like a dream come true, like feeling close to those sorts of artists. And I think that came from you and the team identifying the fact that we actually understood that culture. Um, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that's, that's the I guess, the scene that we came from. And then that kind of led to um, a period where the management was taken over by um, a guy called Tony Harlow. And I found an, uh, another interesting email this morning where I, I wrote to Tony and I said, hey, Tony, you should meet this guy Jaden because he's got he's got he's got it going on. He's got he's got a great roster, but more importantly, he's got he's got the nous to do something here. So I remember hooking up with Tony. I remember being at the signing dinner at that lovely place, which I call my second home. Maria's in North Melbourne with the whole crew, and you end up doing a deal with Tony for for the for the label, right? That's right, we did. And that's where Unified was was really born, really. Right? Essentially, yeah. So that was sort of the. Uh, Unified was the beginning of us sort of merging our management and our label together. Um, there's a bunch of reasons why we did that. One of them was because at the time it was actually really hard to sell records and we kind of didn't really have a sense of what the future of a label was. So we were able to sort of align our vision on the two two core businesses. And yeah, Tony had just joined Warner Australia and he understood what we were doing. And so, yeah, we got into it and yeah, I remember that dinner. I think you made everyone do a shot or two of, uh, oh, of White Sambuca, I yeah, think it, it was, from memory. It would have um, been. But yeah, uh, yeah it's, it was great working with Tony and through that managed to meet amazing people like Marty Court, who of I still course. work with today. Yep. Um, Tony obviously left Warner uh, Australia, but via New York is now in the UK, running Warner UK, and uh, you know I still keep in touch with Tony to this That's day. That's great. Let's, let's just rewind just a little bit then. I mean, we've got some context now, but let's talk about you. What led you to want to be involved in the music industry? And I don't want to go through, you know, your Desert Island Discs because that's that's too obvious. What happened culturally in your life that, that made you want to be involved in, in music per se? What three events, cultural events, or maybe one event, two events, but what made you go, I want to be in music besides the fact that you loved it? Yeah, I guess there's like a few Was things. it a first show? Was it, yeah. yeah, like I – because I started Boomtown – when I was 18, um, so going into university. Um, but I think like really early, like mum and dad insisted that we all learnt music, so me and my two brothers. So I started like piano, clarinet, guitar. Guitar was when it got exciting because that was when I could actually play the music from the bands that I liked. Um, Green Day, Nirvana of and course. that sort of stuff. Um, 2000, oh sorry, 1997, my first ever gig was at Festival Hall. Uh, it was on December the 2nd. I, just, I know I this remember, because yeah. Roger Field asked me to dig it up um, the other night for the launch of relaunch of Festival Hall. Um, so it was uh, The Offspring supported by The Living End. So the first band I ever saw play was The Living End when I was 13 years old Right on the last day of school in, I guess that was probably year seven or year eight. Yep. And so that was like, I could you could wrap so many cliches around this, but like that was a life-changing moment for me. So I was learning music i was appreciating like the creation of music i then got to see one of my favorite bands live and feel that energy but then on the sort of like business side of things um we grew up 
um, next door to David Hirschfelder. Of course. So yeah. David Hirschfelder is like, yeah, one of Australia's most famous or like I guess in the sort of pop sense, not necessarily famous, but his works are some of the most famous uh, screen composer. And yeah, he lived next door. Um, and so he was this musician that lived like next door to just these uh, like, you know, we were just like normal people. Like mum was a nurse, <laughs> dad was a plumber. He was a musician, like what, what, how yeah, are they paying the bills, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And then one day when I was there, his manager came over, Peter Hoyland. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's still there like, with him too. Yeah, I'm like, wow. So there's this guy's making a living from making music. That guy's making a living from working with that guy. Yeah, right. And so at a really young age, I started to get this understanding that there was a business behind music. And then from my love of punk rock, that was when I started to discover the labels behind punk rock labels like epitaph records and fat records and stuff like that and so that was when i really started to go down that rabbit hole and then by the time i finished high school i was like that's it, it was i'm in. gonna start my own record label. you know what's funny Jaden? i was doing marketing for green day around that time i was doing marketing at warner's that was one of my jobs yeah wow. when, I, when i moved to sydney so i would have been at that show for sure because awesome. i went around the country with them yeah wow it's amazing full circle and so and so from, from there you knew you wanted to be in music where did you have aspirations to be anything other than you know in the music industry like you know mum's push you towards law or accounting or was no. it always like from that point was that the moment where you went that's it i'm 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 in. Yeah, like my parents have always been very supportive. And I'm sure at some point it was terrifying for them to think mm. that. I remember talking to my like careers counselor at school and they're like, no way, what are you thinking? Like at least study arts, you know, which I think is what they used to always tell kids and maybe they still do. But I think I had like, because I, I wanted to go to uni, I wanted to make my parents proud in that sense. And I'd applied for like, you know, Bachelor of Business, Music Industry, like um, maybe one of the TAFE courses. And I think I had like a... F I've never, I, I've never actually said this, but I think like I had one option that wasn't music, and it was, uh, <laughs> it was landscape gardening. Oh, I can see you in shorts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> can you imagine me landscaping in my like my my, my Melbourne black outfit, shorts. Yeah. black jeans and uh, and black t shirt. But um, yeah, no, I think music. It, there was something about it. It just always felt like what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. So unified. So when did you get the idea that you wanted to make this bigger than just a record label? Um, yeah, did I guess. Happen, did it happen naturally, organically, or did you have grand designs? Uh, yeah, it was. It all evolved relatively organically, leading into Unified. Because w when you're so so inexperienced and so new as like a record label, because you know compared to the record label you were running, you know Festival Mushroom and then and then Warner, like you know you've got hundreds of staff, you've got oh, all these crazy. things to do. Yeah. When it's just you, like you're like I, I didn't really know what I was doing, and you sort of gravitate at that small level towards the, the things that the artist really needs. And often what those sorts of things ended up being was closer to what a manager was. So like I remember when Behind Grimms and Eyes, um, they ran out of T-shirts while they were in Perth on a tour. And they were like, hey, Jadon, do you reckon you could organize to get us some more T-shirts? And right. I didn't know that that's not what a label yes. did. Right. Um, but I organized the T-shirts. And so the T-shirts are printed. Um, all right, well, I guess I better get a courier. So call up FedEx or Toll or whoever. And the I can't remember the, the exact price of the f freight, but it was it was really expensive. And so I got on the internet and checked out what it would cost for me to fly the T-shirts there, and it was cheaper. So you got on the plane. And so I got on the plane and I took the T-shirts myself. And, <laughs> and the band was like, oh, wow, like something like, yeah, do you, you want to be our manager? Or you might as well be our manager at this point or something along those lines. 
And so it just sort of evolved into that. But, yeah, it happens you know. by default sometimes too because I, I kind of felt like I fell into A&R too because I was employed by Warner as artist development. And similarly to you, I, I was brought in to make sense of Interscope at the time. You know, it was, you know, Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Nine Inch Nails, Marilyn Manson. They had no idea what to do. So my job was to market those kinds of acts like you did yeah. with Panic at the Disco and, and the like back in the day. It felt like a natural organic process for me, just similar you know, to what you just described then. Yeah. No, but then funnily enough, like flying T-shirts across the country is, isn't actually what managers do either. No. Right? But um, <laughs> it was sort of more just driven by this idea of like I just wanted to help. Um, and then, you know, over the, over those subsequent years, you know, we we continued to grow the label. We couldn't continue to grow a merch company. You know, we launched one of the first e-commerce stores, which, which is twenty four hundred, which is turning ten this year. If you think wow. back to two thousand. I remember that launch. Yeah, like there uh, other than JB Hi-Fi online, like we were one of the only stores doing that, and then the management company. So we sort of just got to this point in two thousand thirteen where we're an independent company trying to make sense of how it all works, and I just had this vision. I was like, what if we could just unify everything? Um and, and and go forward with that vision and and that's really yeah where we started in yeah in 2013. And then at that point, how big was your roster? Do um, you, do you recall how many acts you had back then? And yeah, like there was, well, I remember there was about ten staff. Um, and we were working with artists like the Amity Affliction, um, uh, Illy, Violent Soho, um. And and we're talking very early on in these guys' careers, right? Yeah, some some a little further along than others, but it was like what happened in 2013, though, was that was when we, well, towards the end of 2012 was when we discovered Vance Joy. I was going to so, bring that up, actually. Yeah. At what point did you discover Vance Joy? And how did that change your mindset and your way of thinking, just not just for yourself as a, as a manager, but how did it affect you and your company in general? Well, around the time that we discovered Vance was actually when we just had our first number one with the Amity Affliction, so our first number one record on the Aria chart. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I think it took me like a few weeks to come down from that in, in a sense of just like just how excited I was to be like, wow, this is incredible. And not to take anything away from that moment, but uh, I sort of thought that was like, if I, if I go no further than this, like That's the pinnacle. I'm all good. This yeah. is all I need. And then next thing I know, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're in New York with Vance Joy, you know, he's performing for all these like various people in the industry and it's like, oh, wow, there's like a, there's a whole nother, you, know, you sort of get to the top of the mountain and you realize there's another mountain um, and that's sort of what that moment kind of felt like. Right. I remember um, you came in and played me that single on a, on a really rough CD and you, I remember you telling me, look, he used to be a footballer, played for the Coburg Tigers. He's a friend of my brother's. Yeah. I remember you telling me the whole story vividly and you said to me, you looked me in the eye and said, this is going to be fucking huge. And I went, Jadon, knock yourself out. And then next thing you know, everyone was trying to sign it, right? Literally. You know, it ended up going to Atlantic in, in the US, if my memory serves me correctly. Yeah. And you did a separate deal with Gedinsky for Australia and New Zealand, right? Correct. It's a match made in heaven, really. When you've got that's, – that's the kind of like the, the golden um, – uh, what's the word – it's the kind of chalice when, when you can get an international label, a local partner, and yourself, and then get the best of every world, don't you? Yeah, it worked out very well. Yeah, and so from Vance, did that give you the impetus to go even bigger, to create you know, a bigger company? Was that? Yeah, that I think like there was like there's like the practical side to that in a sense of um, you know more success created more like revenue and more opportunities in right. that sense, but probably more importantly like um, like philosophically you know like relocating to new york 
um, and building my network, uh, traveling around the world with Vance Joy and sort of seeing, um, you know, traveling around the world, but probably more importantly, traveling around America and seeing that like, you know, Kansas City is just as big, if not bigger than Melbourne, you know, and things like Mm. this and actually realizing what, wow, there's this really big wide world out there um, allowed me to, uh, I guess, have a desire to replicate that for more of our artists. And then eventually 2015, hiring our first staff member uh, in the US, we've now got 11 people full-time at the company over there. And, oh, wow. And that's becoming like a really big part of our business. So, And what do they do? Are they essentially um, support for your touring acts or? Uh, so it's uh, roughly half split between the label and the right. management company. Yeah. So like we have two managers over there that are uh, focused on signing and developing North American talent. Oh, fantastic. Um, which Anyone is- you can talk about? Uh, yeah, so like our dashboard. Yeah, dashboard confessional. Who I, love. I love Chris. Is one of our our artists we've worked with with Chris for nearly five years now. Yeah, uh, we've got an amazing band called Polyphia. Um, they're from Texas. They're like an instrumental um, progressive metal band, um, yep. and they're like they're doing very well, like like very very well. Um, but they also do support our international our Australian artists that are coming into the market. So whether right. it's Ocean Alley or Tash Sultana, like there's people on the ground to support. Um, and even if it is just providing an introduction for a publicist or helping out with a tool manager or, 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 or getting more involved. But like most of our artists in Australia are touring around the world. And, yeah. and, and then for us on the label front, export is just such a huge um, part of our business. Like we stopped or early on with our label, we would sign a lot of like Australian, New Zealand only deals. We don't do that anymore. It's worldwide deals, right? Um, yeah, you and not to. just with Australian artists, but with international artists too. Like more than half of the artists on our label now are from America. That's incredible. Um, and and but we we didn't do that without building a team. Yeah. We, we made it made it a, a real focus on building that team over there, so we could actually provide that service. We, we're not interested in just getting rights for the sake of it, or because we're good at negotiating. Yeah. We actually want to provide services. And there's not many labels or companies doing that, right? That are Australian based and owned. You're, yeah. you'd, be, you'd be one of the first, I imagine. Oh, yeah. There's like plenty of Australian companies have a presence internationally, but of I think course, but I think we might have one of the larger footprints the largest as, as an independent company. Yeah. Yeah. And um, tell me, like, Tesultana, um, Oceanelli, what have what's been your most and you've got and advanced joy, of course. What's been your proudest moment? And that's like asking a parent to choose a favorite kid. You know, you can't really say it in front of them, but there is a favorite kid. <laughs> Um, what's been the one project that's given you the most joy where you go, wow, we, we did it, you know, and it's yeah. hard. I know yeah. it's difficult and uh, you're not putting uh, on the spot because you're always, you're always going to go, this will be interesting. Uh, there's, but there's so many different versions of that. Like, you know, right. the, the, like getting the Amity affliction from, you know, when I first started working with them, like at the art house in Melbourne to right. the playing Rod Laver arena, having number one records, multi-platinum records touring around the world. Like that's, that's huge. Um, you know, obviously the success we've had with Vance, um, Tash as well. Like I'd never forget like Tash's first show in, in Brooklyn. We played at the at Rough Trade Records. There's like this sort of 200 capacity venue at the back and and Tash played for like two and a half hours. And usually if an artist did that, you'd be like, just stop, please. Um, it's too much. <laughs> yeah. But Tash just shredding on the guitar and, and the audience like, oh, my God. Who is this artist? Yeah, like, she's, so um, much industry was there and they're like... She's very unique, isn't she? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then for me as well, like as I get further into my career, I get so much joy out of seeing my team succeed. Yeah, So great. 
as much as I'm there to support Ocean Alley, like all credit for Ocean Alley goes to Dan Nesimento, who's the manager for, right. for Ocean Alley. So like that to me just brings so much pride. And, you know, similarly with um, Violent Soho, Nick Yates isn't at the company anymore, but like Yates was the one that, you know, really signed Soho with my support, but signed the band and like dug in deep and, and had a vision and helped get them from- Yeah, you let, you let, your, you let your staff flourish as much as you let your artists flourish, right? Yes. I mean, and having mentors is very important um, in this day and age, particularly, I think. I was lucky enough to have uh, people like Michael Gudinski um, mentor me from a very early age, and people like Seymour Stein, who, um, you know, and these guys were mavericks and, and who took chances and rolled the dice. Did you have a mentor? Did you look up to someone? Or was there a, a, a combination of people through your, through your life, career that, you know, have given you inspiration and given you tips and... I've got a funny Seymour Stein story, like oh, yeah? a lot of people do. Tell me. But I'll come back to that. I remember okay. my first South by Southwest, I um I saw him like asleep in the corner. Always. And I didn't know that that was his thing, but his thing. he was always asleep. And I was like, that guy looks like Seymour Stein. And then I got close enough to see his badge and it said Seymour Stein. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. I woke him up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, hey, my friends are about to play a gig. I don't work with them, but they're called Kiss Chasey. And they're like the best band. You got to come see them. So I took him to see Kiss Chasey. And I don't think he ever signed them, but they there was definitely like some chemistry, which was really cool. But for me, like, yeah, lots of different people come to mind. Like um, I've never had like one sort of like consistent mentor, yeah. but like for me, family's always been huge. Um, my folks and my, and my grandparents have always been very, and that's like a cliche thing to say, but genuinely um, of course. have been really impactful on my, my life. Um, Tim Janes. Um, Tim was the general manager at Shock when Boomtown was with Shock. And like the amount of time he gave me, like just sitting on his couch, like asking him probably the stupidest questions about, I don't know, CD and manufacturing. He would, he would have loved that knowing Tim. And he was always yeah. there for me. Um, uh, like that, that's, that's probably, he's probably the one that comes to mind the most. Right. Um, and we we still have a really good friendship to this day. Um, David Vodick is also another person who, he took me on as a legal client, like really early on, um, and that's how I met Matt Rogers, who's our. Who was working there? Yeah, yeah as a lawyer. The, yeah, I think because it got to the point where I was calling David so much, where David's just like, "This kid can't afford to pay my hourly rate. Like, <laughs> let me at least put him in touch with a cheaper lawyer." Yeah. And Matt was like two years older than me. We listened to the same music. We're both like skateboarding and drinking beer and stuff. So. And still with you to this day, right? Yeah, Matt's been with the company twelve years. He's our chief operating officer. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great guy, Matt. Um, yeah, Vodica, for those of people who don't know, is uh, probably the number one law in music law in Australia, I imagine. I'd say so, yeah. You know, there's a few of them out there, but yeah, David's got an a impeccable reputation for doing big deals and, uh, and, being, and being very um, creative with his deals. So let's, um, let's talk about Unified. We know where it's been. Where, where is it now and where can it go or where do you see it going? I mean, is it going to keep evolving based on what's happening with music trends or have you got any other ideas, designs for it right now or are you quite comfortable where it sits in the, in the market now? Um, yeah, so I think a lot I, – I had a lot of time to think, like particularly during like the lockdowns, like what are we going to do with this business? And I took a really hard stance on how we – looked after our team during the pandemic. We didn't let people go and we didn't cut salaries. Um, we made a really conscious decision to look after people. And in, in a lot of cases that sort of just meant me spending personal money. 
but it was a decision that I made one from a from a human perspective, but also from a from a business investment perspective. I didn't want to lose the team yeah. and then have to rebuild on the other side. Um, but what happened was like a huge amount of innovation happened within the business, and we found all sorts of efficiencies for how we could be working better together and stuff like that. And as was sort of in the depths of the sort of mid twenty twenty one kind of time frame, I started to really think about what are we actually what is unified? What are we actually doing here? We started as like this punk rock emo record label. We've had a, a hit with this amazing singer songwriter. We're like got a merch company, all sort of stuff. And um, I came up with this vision, which is that unified is building an ecosystem for creative talent to thrive. Excellent. And we define creative talent in three ways: being artists, obviously, um, our team, and our partners. So I mentioned someone like Marty Court, who we started the Annex with, or yep. Regan Lethbridge and Tash Sultana, who we started Lonely Lands, Lonely Lands Agency. Oh, the with. agency, of course. Yeah, and so yeah. we're sort of building on this strategy of um, attracting creative talent into this ecosystem and finding ways in which to support everyone to thrive. Yeah, giving them oxygen, so to speak. Exactly, yeah. and it's not like we're not acquiring these people, we're not taking their identity, we're, we're actually kind of doing the opposite. We're building this platform um, to allow others to succeed and to allow people like the Annex to not have to worry about invoicing and legal and IT and all these sorts of things right. where, you know, Matt Rogers and his team, you know, he's got, we've got a HR department, we've got a finance department, we've got all these things that a lot of music companies don't have and we're, we're, we're using that to drive this ecosystem. So through that lens and with that vision, we can kind of do anything yeah. as long as it relates to music because we're a unified music group. Of course. And we're building the ecosystem for music. And but then you're also an investor, aren't you, on the flip, on the flip yes. side of that? So it sits outside your music sphere, right? Yeah, so we sort of have two uh, streams of investment. We have unified investments, yep. which focuses uh, on, uh, on music investment. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we've invested in companies like Serenade and Tixel yep. and Cusick. And these are all uh, – because that was probably where I probably got my most most immersed during the pandemic. It's like, okay, the world's changing and it's changing quickly. We need to understand these trends. And it's like, I didn't have the budget to go and build a, a Web3 department or an artificial intelligence department. So I was like, well, what if I just invested, you know, a small amount of capital into a handful of companies that I believed in? I could learn from them. I could support them and essentially bring them into our ecosystem. And then on a sort of grander level, um, me and a few friends came together to form side stage ventures. Yes, tell us about um, that because I'm I'm keen to hear about that. Yeah, so that what it is. Um, so side stage uh, sort of a, a venture capital firm founded by founders for founders. Mm-hmm. So everyone that's involved in side stage is a founder of a business in their own right. Mm-hmm. So we've got like Alex and Anthony Zachariah who started Bolster and then Linktree. Yeah, Linktree, which is uh, massive right now, right? Huge. Yeah, absolutely massive. Yeah, and then. Matt Allen, who's launched Tractor Ventures, um, Ben Grabiner, who started Platoon, which was acquired by Apple. Yep. So there's just some really interesting people that have come together that we were essentially all investing in similar companies independently. Mm-hmm. We all invested in Mr. Yum. We all invested in Heaps Normal. And we just sort of like, hey, we're sort of crossing over here. Is there not an opportunity for us to sort of pull over all of our capital together yeah. and then maybe <clears throat> invite a few more friends in and be able to operate on a grander level. So, so side stage is kind of like a, it, it's a traditional venture capital firm. It's, right. it's got funds under management that invest in uh, early stage um, founders that are um, tr- doing something ambitious. 
Yeah, and um, not necessarily music based either, right? No, it's right. it's so, gone well beyond music, um, yeah. which is great for me because uh, it's allowing me, I guess, exposure to new networks and new ideas. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, that's why we've sort of retained this unified investments uh, thesis because it's to me, at the end of the day, music is really my big thing music investing in music and investing in people yeah that's like, at the heart of what you do that's what right? gets me out of bed in the morning but i know that like and you would know this from your career as well like building networks in other industries generally comes back to help you in some way oh in, absolutely in what you do absolutely so, yeah and it's great having that yeah it's great it's great to sort of get outside your comfort zone and and meet people outside the music industry because ultimately they may come in handy for you down the track you never know who you're going to cross these days you know yeah um before before we uh, we started the interview you mentioned that you're you're a proper ceo now and you kind of went i you know you you're alluding to the fact that you your role has changed you know what does a modern CEO of a company like Unified look like, and what does that CEO do all day? I mean, how 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 diverse is your is your schedule? Yeah, well, because we were talking, you were like, "Oh, what tours are coming up?" Yeah, and, yeah. And yeah. I was like, I, I could tell you a handful of the artists, but it's like a lot of that information that doesn't live in my head. It doesn't live in my head as much as it used to. Right. Um, you know, there's there's over a hundred people across the group, and there's you know quite. And you're a managing lot. those people essentially, right? Well, not all of them, obviously. Of course, I'm but, ma- but managing people that are managing yeah. people that are managing people. Sure. Um, I think a lot of my job is about, like, first and foremost, strategy um, and thinking, and that's probably what where like that sort of lockdown time comes from. That just like sitting there thinking, going, "What? What's next?" Yeah. And because, like, you know, I I remember when I was coming up, there was I was sort of looking up at certain companies and going, "Oh God, I can't believe they didn't do that. I can't believe they didn't think of that." And I'm now thinking through that lens going, I bet there's a bunch of people out there watching me going, can't believe you didn't think of this. Oh, can't absolutely. believe you didn't think of that. It kind of eats and itself, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But, I'm, but I'm equally constantly trying to just ask myself that question. Um, and that's why like, I get so interested in um, speaking to uh, team members that are, you know, the younger team members, you know, people that are in their 20s. It's like, what do you think? Because I think a lot of times they think that, they think that I think I know everything. But it's mm. like, no, 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 I want to know. Yeah. Like Desiree at Lonely Lands or, or Will who managed the Grogans, they're both like in their early 20s. It's like they know just as much as I do, if not more. If not more, yeah. You can, and, and you can learn off those you know, those younger people, can't you? Yeah. I, and, I always did when I was, you know, as I was getting older, I relied on younger members of staff to tell me what was going on out in the marketplace. Yeah. You well, know? even the way you and I connected. Like yeah, if I think course. back to it, it's like that was a, a strategy by you to go, yeah, like this young guy understands this emerging genre of music. Let's, let's get to know him. Absolutely. And so to me, there's that. And then it's the sort of like uh, setting the culture, um, setting the, the theme for what we actually stand for as a company. Mm, which so, is very important, isn't it? Yeah. So like for me, like I... I came up into the industry like very like on my own terms. I wasn't sort of like coming through a traditional pathway. I was starting. And as I got more success, I got to meet people like you and, and Gadinsky and stuff like that and amazing experiences. But I've, um, yeah, I guess I've been lucky enough to be able to sort of set the tone for what I want my business to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, sort of like always thinking about, yeah, what is the culture? How are people being treated? How are we thinking about the future? Um, that's kind of what I spend my days doing. Some days great. are really busy. There's lots of meetings. Other days, there's literally like time for you to nothing think. in the schedule. Or time and, for you to think yeah. and, and plan ahead. And that used to stress me out. 
what am I going to do today? <laughs> yeah, but now yeah. it's like, I know what you mean. Now it's like, yeah, well, I'm going to work on that plan or I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to read a book. Yeah. Because yeah. like there's, I, I need to learn. Like, yeah. And what, what, yeah. What, you, an active mind is very important. And, you yeah. know, particularly when you get to a CEO level. And I remember when I was running Festival Mushroom and I had a fantastic team underneath it that made me look good. And there were days where I'd go, well, everything's kind of covered. You know, what, what do I do? And and it was finding, you know, other other things to do and other people to talk to and, and getting outside your comfort zone, which I think is very important as a, as a new CEO or a new modern CEO these days. Some hypotheticals, I reckon, you know, sure. because I, I, I think um, this, this podcast is very much about the future as well. You know, a lot of people are going to want, like, we can talk about the, the, the past and the, and the now, but what I'm keen on is the realm of the unknown, you know, because a lot of the business works in the realm of the known. You know, we know what's happening. We, we can read. We get, you know, um, we get time-sensitive metrics every day. We know what's going on today. I'm interested in what's going to happen tomorrow and how, what people like you in particular and the people I'm going to be talking to on this podcast, I want to hear their version or their idea for the future, you know. But here's some hypotheticals for you, which, and I love doing this. Okay. So we'll have some fun with this, Jaden. So bear with me. So the first one I want to say, your favourite band of all time want to make a comeback, right? Now, or they could be, they could be you know, perfectly functional today, right? But you're given the keys to bring them back or to relaunch them. Who are they and what do you do? My favorite band of all time, of all time, is, is Rancid. Is Rancid who still exists? Who still? They just released their tenth album. Oh, yes, that's right. Okay, so all of a sudden you're thrust into their their sphere. They're saying, "Hey, Jaden, we want you to just relaunch this whole project. What do you do, or do you leave it alone?" I think I actually think Rancid's doing quite a good job. <laughs> of how they and I'm a big fan. There's also my Rancid baseball bats behind you. Oh, yeah. um, the reason why I have a shrine to Rancid in my office is uh, they're a band I don't work with and they're a band I love and it's a reminder of why I got into this because yep. I love music. Um, I think one of the things that's really interesting for me right now, now that I'm, I'm 39, I'm 40 next year, is nostalgia and just how powerful nostalgia is. It's big is. right now, isn't it? Yeah, and for like even like my best friend Jimmy, it was his 40th in January, um, and we had Body Jar play at his, at his house in Montmorency. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we work with Body Jar. Yeah. Jimmy and I were seeing Body Jar when we were like 15 at Fruit Bowl in Eltham. You might have gone to that, oh, that Many venue. times yeah. with Regurgitator and Frenzel Rom back and, in the day. Yeah, yeah, and nostalgia is huge. Is. And Body Jar's still got a great business, but like Rancid's got a massive business. Um, yeah. And it's like, how could we, without sort of turning them into, because I think sometimes people get scared on the on the precipice of nostalgia into like legacy yeah people don't want to sort of age themselves up but like let's be real rancid guys are in their 50s like oh, they are and they still um, rock it but they still they? rock yeah, yeah. yeah and so i would look at like how we can like how do you solidify that legacy and really remind people just how important this band is because you talk about green day like dookie came out in 1994 so did Out on the walls Out on the walls was a multi-platinum album in america but ruby which, soho was a single wasn't yeah, it? yeah and time yeah. bomb but and time to, bomb for Which music like, like that, that's arguably that aggressive to be that commercially viable is like pretty, pretty impressive. And to still like today sound what's well, nearly 30 years on, yeah. still sound fresh and current. Like I would, I would really focus in on how do we, how do we solidify that legacy and like really like 
keep that lasting impression yeah. like, for the future. I mean, for me, um, my rancid was The Clash oh, uh, from, from a generation yeah. before. Wow. So I, I, I imagine sometimes what The Clash would be like, you know, in, in today's day and age, would they have the same ideals? And I was fortunate enough to meet Joe Strummer backstage at the corner with the Mescaleros wow. sideshow, and I, I, was go I couldn't talk. <laughs> I, I was shaking. Would you be the same with Rancid? Or have you met them? Uh, yeah, I remember we were, at, um, <laughs> we were at Download Festival in Paris. I was with um, Nigel Melder from Live Nation and Luke Logerman, um from Unified. And because I've been wanting to get Rancid to come to Australia forever. Uh, I saw them when I was 14 at uh, the Maya Music Bowl. Yep. And they haven't been here since. And Is that right? Yeah, and they, they're just not interested in coming here for, for a few reasons. But I was like, um, I'm going to go talk to Tim. And I just like, Jad, don't do that. You don't talk. talk we will talk to the agent. We'll talk to the man. I was like, I'm going to go talk to Tim. He's like, Jad, I'm going to the bathroom. Just do me one favor. Don't talk to Tim. And next thing you know, Nigel comes back and I'm standing there talking to Tim. And he's like, I told you not to talk to Tim. <laughs> did you ask him if he wanted to come back to Australia? I did. He was, I was like, it was probably one of the least one of the less professional things that I did. But <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I, I was I was respectful at least. Yeah. Because um, at the time we were we were we were working with Live Nation on Download Australia. Oh, of course. And so download, I was like, yeah. um, that was the that was the premise. Um, but yeah, so that, so Rancid's your dream band. Yeah. Okay. So. Let's talk about if you had to go back in time or you had a time machine and could go back in time, I should say, what would you change or do differently knowing what impact it would have on you now, if that makes sense? Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about this earlier because it's – it's, it's, it's not a trick question or a loaded question. It's just like something I think about, about myself yeah. too. To be honest with you, the thing that came up for me when you said it and I – I hope I can say this in a way that can resonate. I, I wish I, I wish earlier in my career I understood the value of diversity. Yeah. Um, because I, over the last few years, um, a number of events have occurred in in our industry locally and internationally mm -hmm. that have really brought to the service just how how important it is to value diverse voices. Mm. And, you know, things like the Music Industry Review and the Raising Their Voices report like really brought to the surface just how tough so many parts of our community have done it. Yes, very and, much so. And I think back to the earlier parts of my career where I hired my mates and I signed my mates' bands and, and all that sort of stuff. And um, I just, I, like, I think we, we did what we did and we did it in a way that uh, was comfortable and made sense to us. But, yeah, I guess I just... I would love to go back in time and be able to have another go at that. Um, yeah, and I guess that's, that's the kind of thing that comes with maturing as a person, as a human being. You know, your, your ideals change. You know, the, your 18-year-old self is all about, like, going out having fun at all costs, you know, for example. But as you, as you grow older, you get wiser, you get smarter. You know, I think attitudes are inevitably going to change. But that, you know, um, diversity is, is very, very important these days, you know, in every aspect of life, not just the music industry you know, politics, um, local councils, whatever it may be. And I think, um, you know, we've gone through as a, as a, as a world, you know, we could speak about Australia as well. It's, it's been tumultuous the last few years, you know. There's so much division still, particularly in America. When you look at America and, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, and then what we're doing here with our Indigenous population, there's still so much work that needs to be done, right? There is, and, and that's why I wish I had a had have got started earlier yeah and for, for various reasons because firstly on a 
like a human and ethical level, mm. but also on a business level, like having diverse opinions allows better outcomes. I couldn't agree And more. I wish I knew that earlier. Um, there's an amazing guy named Dominic Price who's like the head of people for Atlassian. He's sort of like this futurist. And he was speaking at the ARIA Week event last year on the Music Industry Review. Uh, and he's a, he's a really tall, you know, white English guy. Um, and he goes, yeah, my first job, I, uh, I hired uh, four, I was allowed to hire four people. So I hired four people that looked like me, talked like me, drank like me, went for the same football team. He goes, guess what? We got fuck all done. Yeah. Because all we did was agree with each other. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. when you're actually in a room with people with different opinions and have different lived experiences, yeah, the outcomes, if you're willing to drop your ego and, and be challenged and get over yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've really, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed leaning further into that. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's, that's what came up for me. Yeah, I remember um, when I was talking to Michael about this very issue actually years ago because Michael was a very, uh, Gadinsky I'm talking about, champion women. Most of his staff were, and they were, they were a powerhouse and, and still are. But I remember him saying it's important, and I said, I said, it was more out of um, curiosity for my part. I said, why so many women in mushroom? He said, because they bloody work hard and they know what they're doing. And I went, there's something in that, you know, because um, it was very male dominated for such a long time. The, the music industry, it's changed so much since, and I think it's going to keep changing. So I, I love that answer, Jaden. Um, here's another interesting one: imagine a unified without Vance Joy. What would that look like, or what would have happened if you didn't come across Vance Joy? Would you still be in the situation you're in right now, or how much is? I don't, I don't want to harp on too much about Vance, but I'm just again hypothetical. What what would it look like without Vance Joy? How did you have not met Vance Joy? Yeah, I think about that all the time. Yeah, I think the technical term for that is like war games. Yeah, in business, like yeah. they say, I think it was um, like really big companies run these experiments. I think it was one of the big phone companies in America. Um, their war game for 2019 was a global pandemic. Yeah, right. So they actually prepared themselves for what would happen if there was a global pandemic. Um, <laughs> wow! Ma imagine being prepared for that. <laughs> yeah, right. And so they pulled out the rule book and they and they followed it. Uh, it was like T-Mobile or one of those companies. Yeah, right. Uh, this is obviously a lot less extreme, but yeah, no, I th I think about it. Um, not necessarily all the time, but we are, we're, we're often thinking about our business and what it would look like if things changed. Yeah. Um, I think if it changed today and in a sense of if we stopped working together, like I think I would probably be incredibly sad. Um, you know, I've, I've, I'm very proud of the work we've done together and we have a, a really special relationship. Uh, I think if we hadn't have found Vance Joy, I think we, I still had ambitions to move to America um, with the Amity Affliction and, and continue right. to build their business. I think maybe I probably would have either stayed in uh, that sort of punk rock, emo, hardcore music either for longer or maybe potentially just forever. And that would have been what I, what I focused on. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think Vance Joy coming into the business allowed me to see um, the, the wider industry for what it was um, or for what it is. And I think ultimately today, yeah, if we didn't work with him, it would be, it would be really shit, um, but we would also equally still have a really strong business. And then on the flip side of that sliding door, what act do you wish you would have signed, local or or, or international? 
that you think would have had a massive impact for you? If you had to, yeah, like it's, it's, it's again, hypothetical, wish, it's, it's, a, it's a wish. What would, like imagine you sitting there, because I think about this all the time, where I go, gee, I wish I would have signed that band. <laughs> I could have changed my life. I could have done this. I could have done that. You know, it's it's not crying over spilt milk, but there are moments. I'm sure we all think about this yeah. as A&R people, as, as MDs, as CEOs. I wish I'd have done that or I wish I could have signed that. Or is that, is that I re- one act or? I really wanted to sign Gautier. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and this is like, this speaks to my um, inexperience. It was the first ever Air Awards, right. so the Independent Music Awards. And it was at a hotel in Sydney, like in the city. It was called the Black... Blackman Hotel. I don't think it's there anymore. I remember that too. Yeah, there was only yeah. fifty or hundred people there. Yeah, it was only yeah, it was only a handful of us. I remember yeah. going to that and popping in. Yeah, and I was I was all behind Crimson Eyes, the Getaway yep. Plan. No idea about anything other than that. And but I but I was a part of Air, and uh, Wally Debacker Gautier performed um, Hearts a Mess, um, which was off his second album at the event, and. Early, early, early in my career, I'd done. Um, I was part of a Freezer committee. So Freezer was like the is what well, still exists. It's like part the, of the push. Part of the push. Yeah, yeah state government, Victorian, uh, local communities putting on gigs and stuff like mm. that. And so when I was sort of like fifteen, Wally's girlfriend was on the committee, and so I'd met Wally as in Gautier. Right. Yeah. So I'm at this event. I'm like, oh hey man, how you doing? I haven't seen you ever. And I was like, literally like. What are you up to these days? You had no idea it was I had Gautier. no idea. Yeah, right. And he's like, oh, I'm Gautier. I'm like, oh, well <laughs> done, man. Wally DeBecker. Good oh, you're Gautier. And, uh, and, you know, a couple of days later, I like probably bought the CD because probably even before streaming. And I started listening. I was like, wow, this guy's music's really good. And I reached out to him. and I was like, hey, would love to try to work together somehow and still like having such little idea of, of the industry. And he very kindly invited me to his um, – his place, his parents' place down, down in Merricks. Down in Merricks. Yeah. And I walked into this place, uh, like his sort of music area, and he had, I don't know whether it was meant to be there or not, but he had like a, a little whiteboard and it said potential managers. Oh, right. And it said John Watson, Danny Rogers, Jaden Comerford. Yeah. Um, and he ended up being co-managed by Danny Rogers and, and John and Watson. John, yeah. So I was like, well, at least I made the whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> but at that point, I, did, I, I knew who Danny and John was, but I never yeah. met them. Um, that was a long time ago. Uh, and I had a similar experience early on with the Cat Empire right. um, where uh, uh, the drummer's dad like tutored me for maths. And Is like, right? you know, Boomtown hadn't even found Behind Crimson Eyes at that point. It was that Will, early. was it Will? Was Will, it yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I remember pitching them a distribution deal and, and Will was so kind, he at least heard me out. But then next thing I know, they're signing to a major label. It was EMI, I think. Yeah, I went after them at Mushroom too and I was gutted. I was gutted when they, when they signed to EMI. Yeah. I thought we were in every chance, but, but yeah, they're great. Yeah, but two artists that I love, but I equally I don't I don't regret them because I I the reality is I had no chance at all. Of yeah, and you were just starting out, right? At least, so. I, at least I had a crack, and and to their credit, at least they were kind enough to uh, at least hear hear yeah. a young kid out. Gotcha, yeah, a fantastic act. I'm not sure what Wally's doing these days, but um, I remember buying that Hearts of Mess record too, and and you know I remember saying to at the time I think it was Mark Asprey, just I said you know you know if we were smart as a as a company. We should all, you know, go down there and and make a fist of trying to sign this guy, and they just didn't hear it at the time, you know. Um, and then, lo and behold, he has that massive hit with uh, with Kimbra. Yeah, which, that was huge. You know, yeah, we win some, we lose some, don't we, Jaden? You know, we've all experienced that. Yeah, no regrets though, and I genuinely. Yeah, there, that. there shouldn't be any yeah. regrets. Um, and then, like, here's one for you as well, which I I, th- I thought about back in the day, and and you're at the height of you know your success right now. You're riding a fantastic wave, and you know, and deservedly so. 
a big company comes along and says, "Hey, Jaden, we want to buy. We want to buy you out completely. We want to take over everything. Here's a big shitload of cash." And they say, "On the one proviso that you sit out for a few years, maybe four or five years, gardening leave. You can't start another company. What do you do? What do you do in that time?" Yeah. Well, I, I can I can see you being proactive and busy, but you can't have anything to do with the entertainment business whatsoever. Yeah. Nothing at all. Well, maybe I finally start my <laughs> landscape gardening business. <laughs> or can do a podcast. Yeah. I think seriously, I would, what would you do? I mean, obviously, you'd be sitting on a fat load, of, you know, a big wad of cash. But knowing what, what the kind of person you are, I mean, I can't see you sitting still for very yeah. long. You're well, a doer. Knowing what kind of person I am, I probably wouldn't do it. Yeah, that's right. Um, I that's would right. probably say thank let's you. Pretend, but no let's pretend you were tempted let's, by it. Let's by, pretend that I did yeah. it. I would do what I hope I'm going to do eventually anyway. Yeah. Um, and build a health retreat. Oh, that's great. Um, in the high country uh, up near Mount Buller, where Rachel, my wife, and I have a property. Um, our, we're already we're currently sort of building our own the place for ourselves place to escape the city and escape the busyness of of the of the industry but yeah i would um i'm hoping at some point in my life i find the the space to build something that i think can uh support like just generally the community but probably hopefully more importantly i actually support the music industry and support people so the people in the music industry want to wind down and and you know and get some you know some R and R time, yeah. Proper R and R time, yeah. So you'd, you'd, if if that was happening, you'd probably find me up there, um, <laughs> Svengali like, cross legged, meditating, um, and then and then otherwise, yeah, you know, planting sweet potatoes and uh, and landscaping at the same time, and maybe doing some landscape. We'll see. <laughs> I think about that. Like like you think about it. Could it could happen, Jaden? Careful what you wish for. You're being given the task of. I know you're going to say rancid, but let's let's take <laughs> let's take rancid out of the equation, right? You've been given the task of programming a Coachella. Let's call it Coachella. And you're programming it. Who's the headliners over the three nights and who's beneath those headliners? And make it, and it's going to be, I'd, I'd like you to think outside the box a little bit and be a little bit eclectic. This is your ideal lineup. But at the same time, it needs, it needs to make commercial sense because you want punters to go through, right? So what would Jaden do at Coachella? I, so I did see Rancid at Coachella <laughs> in 2018, but I think they played at like three o'clock in the afternoon. I was going to say so it would have been on the, a small stage. Definitely wasn't a headliner. Yeah, yeah. Um, honestly, this is such a good question. I think I would probably uh, call uh, Jess DeCrew and Danny Rogers and ask them to help me. <laughs> yeah. Um, because this is probably not really where my forte lies in that type of. Of course, but just let's let's pretend you you know you've you've, you've got the keys. Someone's giving you the keys to the kingdom. I'd probably I'd probably put them out of business though. My taste. <laughs> that's all right. Let's go. Let's let's try it on. What would it look like? I because I'm intrigued. I'm, I'm well, going to ask this of everybody, by the way. No, it's a good question because I think oh I think the first thing I would do before even booking I would I, I say I call Jess and Danny, but I would actually like. Because the one of the most exciting things about music right now is it's coming from countries that we haven't uh, really thought about mm. a lot in the past. Yeah. Like there's, I think they had the first um, major Indian artists play Coachella this year. Um, you know, we've got these you know amazing artists like Bad Bunny. We've got artists coming out of like yeah, Africa, Africa, yeah, and like and because of naturally the kinds of music that I work with, like I'm not really, it's not really my world. So I think that. And it's likely going to happen anyway because Paul Tiller, who books Coachella, is you know one of the best music creators in the world. But it's yeah. like, I think it's just that lineup's just going to get more and more eclectic diverse, yeah. and more diverse. Mm. 
and people like you and me are going to probably keep going, who the hell's that? Yeah. I've never heard of them. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, they're massive. So yeah. I'm not really answering your question because I don't you're not, think I'm going to give you a good you're not, answer. You're not, you're, not getting, you're not getting away scot-free. So, okay, so it's, it is difficult. Just pick three headliners then. Who's doing the Friday night? Who's doing Saturday night? Okay, you can, you can have Rancid, okay? Just <laughs> but, to make it easier. We for won't you. sell any tickets. Or we'll sell matter. a few. Let's, let's do Rancid on the Friday night just to give well, you an out. It would be cool. Well, this is such a lazy answer. But I guess you, you just get, you'd have to get Taylor Swift, right? <laughs> All right, let's go Taylor. Yeah, I can see her working as, yeah, as the, uh, you know, every festival has the, the ironic moment. She could be the ironic moment on your festival. Yeah. I saw, because I, I saw Beyonce at Coachella a few years ago, and that was, that was huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know, like, obviously that would be an obvious booking for, for Coachella if, if the, uh, the finances made sense. Um, but Taylor Swift. Um, and Beyonce. On the same on on the same lineup. I didn't say that, but sure, if yeah. you want to do that, yeah. let's yeah. do that. Okay. So we got Rancid on the Friday, <laughs> Taylor on the Saturday, Beyonce closing on the Sunday, and is like, Jay Z making an appearance on? It's got to be right. I think each each artist is going to have surprise. A special guest, right? Surprise so let, let's guests. pick let's pick a special guest. So Rancid would be. Don't say yourself. I'm backing vocals. <laughs> but who would be? Um, oh, it's a shame we can't see Joe Strummer, isn't it? Um. It would have been great, though. It would have been great because, yeah, as of course. for those that don't know, Joe Strummer passed away quite a few years ago, the yeah. singer of The Clash. I don't know. I'm going to throw in one of our artists, go Teen Jesus and the Gene Teasers. There you go. Perfect. That's that's a great Friday night. Yeah. Yep. And then Saturday, you've got Taylor, and we're going to put on who before Taylor? I guess we might as well get Vance Joy, right? Yeah. I was going to, I was going to suggest <laughs> that, too. So Vance, Vance and Taylor, which makes sense. They, have they met, by the way? They toured together. That's right. They did, right? That's right. Here. Uh, he, no, here in the US, and the States. Canada, and the UK. Wow. Yeah, it was a yeah. whole world tour. Wow. And on the Sunday, you got Beyonce, and then... Yeah, let's get Jay-Z. That'd Jay-Z. be great. Okay. That's great. All right. You're not going to get a job in the programming festivals, Jaden. Well, I think I've you. probably just blown the budget. Yeah, <laughs> you've blown the budget. There's no <laughs> so one left. We'll have to increase the uh, the platinum tickets uh, by, <laughs> by a lot. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's get serious now. Um, a lot's been said... A lot, there's a lot of conjecture, a lot of talk about where the domestic music industry is right now. Um, you know, there's been a lot of complaints. I hear it every day. I I find it buoyant right now. I, I see where people see grey, I see white, and I see opportunity. How do you feel about where we are as an industry in Australia? And and, and, I, and I base this on, on the complaints that the chart, chart's rigged and how can you have five Taylor Swift records in the top ten every week and – you know, where's this next big act going to come from? How do we break them? Are we getting, you know, are we getting a fair crack from Spotify? Has Triple J lost its meaning or its purpose? You know, has it got the same cut through? There's all these different questions being asked every day that I'm hearing. I'm not sure if you're hearing the same kind of things. But what's your perception of where we are right now as a business? I'm not talking about the domestic business, not not the international business or the international music coming into Australia. I'm talking about Australian artists and their place right now in the world and, and in this country. Yeah, no, I've thought about it a lot uh, and we're talking about it a lot. Um, I, was at, I was at Splendor on the Grass on the weekends and one of our young bands, um, the Grogans, yeah. played on Friday 5.30 and they were in like a small tent, but they had, it was packed, it was overflowing. Yeah. And I took a video of, about 10 second video of it and mostly all you could see was just people crowd surfing. And I just sort of texted it to like a whole bunch of friends in the industry and I just wrote, Australian music is alive and well. And I know that that moment isn't going to, uh, isn't, isn't the be all and end all. Mm. But I, to be honest with you, I'm actually 
sick to death of this narrative. Me too, and that's um, why I, I raise it. And I don't don't get me wrong, it's not easy. But like I spoke to Michael about skyhooks. That wasn't easy either. No. Like but Hein Crimson Eyes wasn't easy. The getaway plan wasn't easy. Even Vance Joy wasn't easy. Like nothing's ever been easy. I, I couldn't agree more. I you know, when I was doing ANR, when I was on a band called Regurgitator who had a you know, a Vietnamese singer and a Chinese drummer, and my boss said to me, Are you serious? You know, that that wasn't easy. That you know, it's it's every era has its has its, its issues and problems, and this one's no different. But for some reason, the, the noise is getting louder and louder and louder, and I don't see it. So yeah, I feel like in a way we're losing control of the narrative mm. of what it actually means. People keep using this terminology about like breaking artists. It's like, well, what does it mean to break That's an artist? Right. Like, so like Ocean Alley's just sold out two Horton Pavilions without a promoter. They're not on the chart. Right. But who gives a shit? I agree with you. Like, yeah. it, have they broken? They're not on commercial radio. They're not on the chart. But have they broken? Yeah. Like, they've sold, like, more tickets than most artists sell in their career. Yeah. And, like, I think, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's, it's the narrative's incorrect. And I think it's creating a bad look for Australian music. Mm. Because really the opportunity for Australian music isn't just about a chart. It's about it's about selling yeah. tickets and it's about going global as well. Yeah. Like that's really this generation's big opportunity. And we can spend a lot of time criticizing streaming. And I think there's a lot of changes that can and will likely will be done with things like artist-centric streaming and the payouts yeah. and stuff like that. We'll talk about that too. But like ultimately we can't really fault how positive streaming has been like it's much better than what was happening before streaming came along mm. in terms of just like CDs. Well, there was a void, wasn't there? Diving. There was a massive void yeah. between the CD era. And, and now we can like, you know, back in the day for me to get Behind Crimson Eyes heard overseas, I literally had to convince someone to license it off me and press CDs and put them into shops in America or in in Japan or in or in Germany sure. or something. Whereas now Ocean Alley or Teen G's and the Gene T's can put out a song and anyone anywhere in the world can listen to it. Obviously, it's super competitive with the volume of songs that are coming out. Um, but yeah, I think Australian music. I think we need to get better at promoting Australian music and stop this sob story because mm. it's not actually going to help. Because with if you if you match the put the sob story next to the tall poppy culture of Australia, oh, it's it's all over. If anything, right? people just pile onto it. And the go, sky's oh, falling. Well, well, they're a bunch of losers. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> of course. Whereas, like, let's let's put, puff our chest out and go. No, things are great. Yeah. Like, it's not easy, but it never was easy. No, and it's never going to be easy. Because we've got a, such a, 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 an incredible, you know, diverse range of artists in this country. You know, our, our urban hip hop scene's so healthy. You know, um, our indie scene's really healthy, and our pop scene's really healthy. I I just feel that um, mm -hmm. it becomes self perpetuating after a while. You know, if you keep if you believe that you know the sky's falling and you keep saying it, it's going to fall. So we're at a very, very crucial time, I think, as, a, as an entire industry. And all of us owe it to each other to stay strong through this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this, you, you mentioned Spotify before. What platform do you think, and I don't care what it is, is that we can't do without? We as an industry? Yeah. If you had to say choose one platform, and it's, again, we, it's kind of hypothetical, of course, and I'm going back to that theme, but if you had to choose one platform which you think is crucial in the development and the success of Australian artists, what would that platform be? Is it TikTok? Is it Spotify? Is it YouTube? I mean, what 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 platform do you think we can't get by without? 
It's a good question. It's a very good question, actually. It's, I was going to say Spotify, and I think I'll probably still stick to that. But I think YouTube is also mm. an incredibly important platform. But um, I guess just, just generally the concept of streaming, like I can't really fault. Well, I can, I can fault it. There's, there are some great arguments to how it's, the payouts can be quite low at a small level. But the opportunity it creates and the revenue that the the perpetual revenue that gets created once you have reached a certain level of success is something that we really can't fault. Yeah, I uh, saw a study recently, which uh, I won't tell you. I won't divulge the source because I'll get my uh, knees chopped off. And it it was a study on on um, how people discover music. Um, TikTok was a clear number one, and and when I say people. Um, 16 to 24 is primarily, which is considered as the, you know, the, the demographic that drives, you know, music streaming or, or music sales, whatever you want to call it. So TikTok was one, YouTube was two, Spotify was three, and gaming was four. So uh, I was surprised I was surprised by that. I mean, I knew TikTok was powerful, yeah. but they are right now regarded as number one um, avenue for discovery. Yeah, makes around, sense. Around, around the world. Yeah. What do, you th- what do you think of TikTok? Is that, have you used it? you know, wisely and have you used it to great effect with your artist or is it something that's horse, which is a horse for courses approach? I think it's like, oh, yeah, it's no doubt that its yeah. impact is is huge. And like, uh, I know Ocean Alley from Splendor on Friday night, they did a, because they, they were um, the replacement act for Lewis Capaldi. Yes. And right. so they did like a tribute to Lewis Capaldi because um, you know, he canceled the tour for like personal health reasons. And yeah. it was this really beautiful moment and they're sort of, that moment's gone viral on TikTok. I was going to say, they would have traveled everywhere, yeah, right? which is awesome. So there's like, there's this, it's a great way to share content. Mm. Mm. Um, I think like there's definitely like a another side to TikTok and not just TikTok itself, but I think just the abundance of platforms where I think certain artists, a lot of artists, I think are kind of overwhelmed by having to be content creators. Mm. And so I think that there is definitely probably some artists using it better than others. And probably a lot of artists that probably should be using it more. Mm. Um, but that said, you know, there was artists probably back in the day that didn't want to make music videos or didn't oh. want to do MTV. And, and and plenty of those artists still had tons of success. Or didn't want to get synced. I remember yeah. back in the day there were artists on my roster, um, which will remain nameless, who, who after winning, I think it was five Ari Awards, Coca-Cola came along and said, can you write our summer jingle? And he's half a million dollars. And they went, nah, you're Coca-Cola. We don't want to be involved with Coca-Cola. Yeah. Today, said artists will probably jump at that, wouldn't think twice. Mm. So the, 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 it's, there's been a shift in thinking with yeah. artists over the years too. There has been, but I also think that like, I think this is where the, partly where the industry sometimes slips up too, where it's right. like, all right, TikTok, everyone's going to be on TikTok. Like, right. And the, the labels are like, oh, this is how you do it. And, blah, blah, blah. and they mm. set up their content rooms in their offices and think they've figured it all out. Yeah. And it's like, at the end of the day, artists are artists, and we need to allow them to be artists. I agree. Like and like Vance, um, James hardly uses TikTok. Um, he has twenty four point five million monthly listeners on Spotify. Like, what's more powerful? Yeah, right. it's yeah. like I could spend a whole bunch of time trying to convince him to use TikTok and probably piss him off, or I can go. You know what? He's staying true to who he is. He's doing it the way he wants to do it. Yeah, it's working. You know, what more do you want from this guy? Yeah, and that's key. For, that's key for me too. And it's a very good point, Jaden, because you can't. You, you can lead a horse to water. You know, to use a cliche, you can't yeah. make a drink. 
every artist is going to be different and yeah. the perception of what works or what works for them is going to be vastly different to the next artist. Yeah. Um, you just got to let artists be, I think. Yeah, and same as people in the industry. It's like of I course. could go out and sign 10 more artists or do something different, but it's like I like the way I run my business. Yeah. I like the way I spend my time. This is how I operate. Same, same as you. Like you, you just – you are who you are. You do what you do. That's right. Is there a blueprint for forging an international career? Do you follow – is it – one size fits all for your roster, or do you find that the plan changes with each act? Obviously, stylistically, musically, each act's different, but have you got a blueprint for forging that path? I think there's like pieces of it. I think any time I've thought that I had the exact formula, I've been proven wrong mm. um, in that the sense that there isn't, yeah, there isn't an exact formula. But if there's one constant beyond releasing great music, it's probably touring. Right. And obviously, like, not every act tours, but like, you know, the majority, if you look at the, the like a, uh, a line through like this sort of consistency of artists we've worked with over our time is mostly artists that play guitars and right. those artists generally tour. Love touring, yeah. So for us, yeah, getting artists on the road into international markets is usually like very expensive mm. um, and it's something that we're hoping that uh, you know, the government already supports it to a certain extent, but we're yeah. hoping that with you know a lot of the changes that are coming with like Music Australia and stuff that there's going to be even more support. But I think, yeah, if most Australian artists that have success overseas, it's likely driven through through touring. And do you have to relocate to have that success, or can you do it via remote control from Australia? No, you don't need to relocate. No, right. like, like both the industry or or the artists. But mm. like, if I look back and think about the time that I got to spend overseas, like it was awesome. Yeah. And I think if you've got the opportunity to do it and if you, and the means to do it, um, I think it's a, a great opportunity for, you know, Australian people that have lived overseas. I think they they bring back such great experience as well. Of course, well. that's the word experience. I mean, there's nothing like living overseas and seeing how the other half live and how the industry works over there, yeah. which is vastly different to how it works here, I think. Yeah. I mean, the basic principles are similar, you know, create a great song, put a great team around it, but no, people don't realise the amount of work that would go into breaking a country like America. I mean, it's a massive territory, yeah. you know, and the same with Europe, you know, like it, it takes time and it doesn't, and you have to have a bit of luck in your way too, you know, the right song, the right time, the right environment, you know. So, so I love the, the fact that you have got, the, you have got a basic blueprint and yours is get over there and tour, you know. Yeah, well, I also think back to like um, Glenn Wheatley, Mm. Um, sort of famously talked about when he broke the Little River Band in America, how he went to like every radio station in America. Yeah, like I'm the sure boardroom performances. Yeah, and yeah like I'm sure he didn't go to every radio station in America because that right. would take you a hundred years. He would have taken we took, took the eyes out of it. Yeah. We took a, like a leaf out of that book with Vance Joy. Like when we first got to America, it's like like we would just go wherever they would let us. Like I think James and and Rachel, my wife, who works with Vance Joy. Then they went to Boise, Idaho, like three or four times in the first year. Uh, Pretoria, Illinois, yeah, right. like Ann Arbor, Michigan, and it's like it's like, yep, they're playing the song. Cool, let's go and play in the boardroom, or let's go and play there. Excite them. Their lunch hour on yeah. the on the balcony for the staff, and and we just like chipped away and chipped away and chipped away, and then you know a few years in, we actually were lucky enough to meet Glenn Wheatley, uh, and it turned out that he was actually a huge Vance Joy fan, mm. and um, it was kind of cool to be able to tell that story and the fact that he actually inspired the way we thought because I think about people like Glenn as like, you know. Really One of the pioneers. Pioneers, yeah. yeah, pioneers of, yeah. of the Australian music business, particularly in terms of exporting it. Yeah, had a lot of time for, for Glenn and um, he was he featured uh, 
heavily and, and very nicely in the uh, Farnham documentary the other night. I'm not sure if you caught that, but it was actually quite yet. inspiring, that, that I, documentary. I, I'm very much looking forward to really good. watching it this weekend. I was knocked out by it because, I mean, I, I, I knew Glenn pretty well. I didn't really know John, but it just showed you what tenacity and having a game plan can do for, for an artist who was really on the outer at the time, you know, John, little Johnny Farnham, they used to call him. Yeah. So Glenn, Glenn had the vision to, to, you know, to go over there. Or, and he did the same thing he did with LIB in, in America, with Australia, at first, first and foremost with Johnny, because no, no one would touch him or play him. Wow. And he couldn't get into a pub. No one wanted to book him. But John just went around and just found, you know, he found his, he created, created these little spot fires all around the place and they turned him into bushfires eventually. But he, he was great. Okay, so let's talk about, you touched on the government before. Can they be doing more for us as an industry to, to help, you know, particularly with exporting, do you think? Yeah, do of you course, think, yeah. You think, yeah, what, what else can they do for us besides providing, here, has some money. Are they giving us enough money? Have they got the right programs in place? Uh, you know, uh, organisations like the Australia Council doing, you know, doing a good job for us. What, what's your perception of just the government in general, both federally and state by state? Yeah, like I've I've never been that into politics to be honest with you. Right. I think maybe just from like the punk rock kind of <laughs> point of view, it was just kind of like you know, and and then I, yeah, I guess I've always just been focused on like do it, do it out, do it our way, do it at, DIY essentially. But the pandemic was really eye opening because it was like the first time where I really felt supported by the government. Um, you know, things like JobKeeper and stuff like that. Like, obviously, there's all sorts of faults in all sorts of things that were done during the pandemic but to see the industry actually get acknowledged with like the rise grant which once again had its shortcomings but there was just more support than we've ever seen before and then to see you know anthony albanese come into government um and to see you know tony burke being such a huge supporter of music it's like at the end of the day like music is everything like for me but the world has a lot of things to deal with like could you imagine being anthony albanese and you got yeah. people like you and me going, hey <laughs> uh, we really need you to help us get more bands to america, to america. he's like uh, he's like oh, i'm thinking about wars famine. i'm thinking about famine. <laughs> i'm thinking about you know climate change like you know so much so much stuff and so i think the fact that they've even acknowledged us the fact that yeah. they've written us into into the um you know, the, I don't even know the te terminology, legislation, legislation yeah. you know, for, yeah. for Music Australia and Creative Australia. And like, I remember going to the launch of the ESPY when they did it. And like, I got a bit emotional because mm. I'm like, I've committed, they, they know who we are. I've committed my life to this business, uh, to the industry, I should say. I've been doing it for more than half of my life. Mm. And so you yeah, have this moment where it's like, and sure, maybe people say, oh, they're just paying lip service or something like that. But I don't think that's true. Like, I genuinely think they're trying. I think that, at the end of the day, we got we've got amazing state bodies as well, like Music Victoria, Music New South Wales, you know, and the equivalents around the country. I think more and more politicians are. I think, I think it seems like people are, people that love music are becoming more influential. So, like John Green, the Minister yes. of Music for the state uh, in New South Wales, like yes, very much so. You know, a music fan that's kind of they're rising in their career in politics. And so I think that, I think we're only gonna see better results from, from government as we, as we move forward. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I'm still operating from a place of like, we're gonna do it with or without them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But if you can help us a little bit, because we, we generate a lot as an industry for, for the economy and exporting 
you know, the money still flows back. Of course it does, yeah. And, and the taxes still, still get paid in taxes, Australia. Yeah, of course. And so I think there's a huge um, opportunity for the government to continue to, to really support get. that. Well, Albanese, if anyone's going to do it, it's him. I remember seeing Albo, this is this is a very true story, um, at the Gasometer Hotel, this is pre-pandemic, he was there for Polish Club. He was, he's had a few drinks. He's on, he jumped up on stage and started doing backing vocals, unasked, no one asked him, <laughs> he just did it. And then spent the next hour talking, you know, sitting around backstage talking to the band about how, how much he loved them and how, how much he loved Australian rock and roll. So if anyone's going to do it, it's Elbow, you know. Um, yeah, I love that. Yeah, he's, he's the real deal, you know, and he's, uh, he's very partial to the arts and music in particular. So, you know, more power to him. Okay, so we're almost there, Jaden. Um, the music industry as a whole, the major music industry as a whole, I believe, there's one thing, I mean, we talk about changing a narrative, but I'm of the firm opinion that parts of the business are still very much risk averse. People, and we talked about this earlier, I think the industry as a whole right now, and I think it will change, deal in the known, not the unknown, and therefore are very careful about where they put their money, whether they choose to you know, develop an artist, probably not in your circles because you're very much a nimble company, a very different company to, to, to the rest of the industry now. Do you think we are risk averse in general as a business? On every level, record labels, um, promoters, venue bookers, are we are we playing the safe card, safe option, or is anyone taking chances out there that you can see? Besides, yeah. besides your good self, of course. <laughs> no, there's. I think there's lots of people taking chances and yeah. taking risk, but at the same time, I think I think actually, like just doing it is is a risk in yeah. the first place. Like yes. we're we're often operating in a very low margin business uh, as an industry. And so, like, especially the promoters putting on festivals or yeah, those a, big tours. It's big ass sometimes, isn't it? And, and to, to, to make, like, a 5% profit margin on a tens of millions of dollars, you know, that you've outlaid, like, that, that is crazy kind of risk. But I think one thing that I think we are – someone said to me recently, it's like the music industry is often trying to solve yesterday's problems. Yes, correct. Um, and they rarely get around to thinking about what today's problem actually is, let alone – Tomorrow's. tomorrow's problem yeah and so that's kind of where i try to spend a bit more of my time you know what is it actually what is like generative ai actually mean we'll talk about and, that it's my and, last question <laughs> and what could that mean to our industry mm. you know like things like that and it's like i'm not going to be able to give you an answer but i'm definitely going to be able to share a whole bunch of thoughts and, and i'm going to continue to follow that thought mm. um but yeah i think what we need to take more risks on is is artists uh, and 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 subsequently the teams that support those artists because it is it's getting harder and harder to like take an artist from zero to something mm. but at the same time like we're doing it like, yeah and and we're going to keep doing it and if we don't keep doing it our businesses are going to look really freaking boring and that requires risk right that requires well, just rolling the dice I mean and sometimes they have to be calculated I I understand that and I get that because I do it too but then sometimes you go. You know what? I, you know, I'm going to take a, I'm going to roll the dice on this, and yes, it may cost me financially and maybe health, <laughs> mentally, but every now and then it's it's worth that roll, isn't it? Yeah, but also if we don't do it, who's going to? Well, right? no, but someone will. The next yeah, Jared right. or the next Michael will do to? it, yeah. and and that's like kind of like it's not what I'm terrified of, but it's what I'm constantly trying to keep my eye on. It's like who is the next person that isn't. Like they're not worrying about things that I'm no. worrying about. They're not worrying about government support or generative AI. No. Or, 
they're going this genre of music in this subsection it's gonna be of big, yeah. I'm going to like like me with emo back in back 2004 I'm yeah, just like I didn't care that the sky was falling and CD burning sales were up and Napster was eating the industry and yeah. major labels were having to let staff go yeah I was like I didn't know what any of that meant all I knew was that I loved uh, my chemical romance and I wanted to promote similar bands so I think that we need to take yeah, we need to take more risks on artists. Yeah, and we need to support like that creativity because that's that's ultimately the future. And also take take a risk on people that bring those kind of artists to you. You know those those mavericks out there. Yeah, you know? look, I, I you know like over the years I've, I've worked with artists because of the people that brought them to me as well. Like for example, someone like Paul Curtis, who who brought me. You know we we did studies together. Me as a label, him as a manager. Absolute maverick, like crazy. He, I mean, he he was so anti-establishment, but I and I was part of the establishment. But we kind of gelled, and I we gelled because I gave him the keys. I just went, I like you because you think outside the square. You know, like he's the guy who thought up the bubble for boy in the bubble. So it's also taking a chance on 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 potential executives, right? Yeah. So that's that's what that's what excites me, and that's why I don't think there's that much doom and gloom. I think we're born in the sense that. It's up to us to find these these future stars, artists and executives or, or people around those stars to make it work and make it gel again. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think that's about it, Jed, and I think that was a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much. Anything, any parting words? But I'm no. going to edit this really well and you're going to sound fantastic, except for the bit where you talk you talk about programming Coachella, <laughs> which you, you got a, a big fat cross next to. I, I, need, I need to you just... Need, you need to brush up on that, on your, oh, on your programming skills. I think skills. you play to your strengths, you, you know. You do, you do. Um, and, yeah, that's why I, uh, yeah, I, I, I will... I'll do some homework and maybe come back to you yeah. on that one. <laughs> and, it's, and it's great. It's, thanks for being the first guest. And, um, you know, you've, you've, you've created something truly special here with Unified. And um, I've been lucky enough to see from from the start up until now. And you're a powerhouse. And I know you're going to be a powerhouse for a long time to come. Cool. So congratulations. Thank and, you, and thanks for being part of this. Yeah, thanks for your support. Thanks, bud. You've been listening to Vinyl Tap, Inside the Music Industry, the podcast with Michael Parisi. If you enjoyed that episode, please go to my website for more information about any of my guests, www.vinyltappodcast.com, all one word, of course, and we'll see you on next week's instalment.